We are continuing our series as we follow the uh, children's Bible story book. And today we talk about what I think is probably one of the greatest pieces of narrative literature in the history of the world. It has been read for thousands and thousands of years. In fact, it's so arresting that I don't think we need an introduction. Let's just go for it. Picking up with the life of Abraham. Sometime later, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham! Here I am, he replied. Then God said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. So Genesis 22 opens with this horrendous request on the part of God to his friend, Abraham. I don't know if you can understand this unless you have a child of your own. Maybe you can only understand it if you only have one child that you've waited for your whole life and you are now well past 100 years old. God had promised Abraham a son and Isaac that Abraham waited for as long as 25 years to receive. By this time, Abraham might be 115, I don't know, to 130. Uh, Isaac is probably anywhere from, I don't know, 15 to 30. We don't know how old exactly they are at this point. But this is the request God is making of Abraham. The God that he has been getting to know for a long time unveils a new kind of request. Hang on. If you know anything about the life of Abraham, you know that he hasn't always just been one of those, God said it, I believe it, that settles it kind of a guy. He's been known to argue with God quite a bit. And the odd thing here is, there isn't going to be any argument, at least no argument that's recorded. And that's what's infuriating about this. Now, either Abraham has come so far in his relationship with God and trusts him so much and loves him so much, he's willing to say, okay, I trust you will go on. Or there's a whole lot of dialogue that we're not privy to that goes on. But regardless of whatever happened in the silence, 
The next morning, early the next morning, verse 3, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, in other words, there probably wasn't going to be a lot of wood where they were going, he set out to the place that God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Now Abraham knew that God had promised Isaac to be the one in whom his descendants would flourish. So either... He's again showing great faith that whatever happens, somehow he and Isaac are coming back even after Isaac's been sacrificed, or he's lying to his servants. Abraham isn't known to lie before. It's one of the things that God kind of helped him out with. So I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's both. Verse 6, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? I don't care who you are, this has got to kill you. Great faith or struggling with doubts, Abraham has got to be just slayed by that innocent observation on the part of his son whom he loves dearly. Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Isaac had been provided by the Lord miraculously. So is he speaking in metaphor? I don't know. When they reached the place that God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. This is incredible. The guy's 115 to 130 years old. I mean, he can walk, obviously. But is he a match for a teenager to a young adult? Really? I mean, (laughs) what is with this picture? What is with Isaac? 
Is Isaac such a dutiful, loving, trusting son that he says, okay, Dad, tie me up. Put me on top of the altar. I mean, think about what Abraham's going through. He's, he, they've got to grab stones from around the area and they're building up this rough altar, right, that they can then put sticks on. It's like digging your own coffin's grave, right? And this kid is going along with it. And Abraham is following through with it. And I don't know how to process what's going on. I was not that kind of a teenager. I gave my parents fits because I wouldn't do what they asked. I don't know what you were like. This is amazing. Absolutely amazing. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. How do you do this if you're a dad? How do you do this? The question you have to ask yourself is, where can I stab my son to kill him the quickest and put him out of his misery? Because the way these sacrifices work is, there's a killing and dismembering that occurs before the actual burning of the sacrifice. The emotion, I can't even fathom the emotion. Isaac is probably weeping, tied up. Abraham is sobbing as he lifts the knife. And yet he's going to go through with it. Verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham! Abraham! Here I am, he replied. Interesting, that term, the angel of the Lord, is used over and over again in the Old Testament. And very often when the angel of the Lord shows up, this being is worshipped and accepts worship and things like that. I think most conservative theologians believe that the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is actually the pre-incarnate Christ. Jesus, before taking human form, as a baby in Bethlehem. I kind of believe that too. Because of what he says. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me, from me, Your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. 
he went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. If you want to do a great study through the Old Testament, just do a study on ram's horns. Here, and then how they're used throughout the history of the people of Israel. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. Jehovah Jireh, as some people will say, although that's not the way you pronounce it in Hebrew. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord. Okay, another reason to believe that it's Jesus pre-incarnate, but I think this is a little funny right here. I swear by myself because, you know, there's nothing greater to swear to. It'd be like having God in the courtroom. Do you swear to the whole truth and nothing but the truth? So help you. You? (laughs) It's kind of what's going on here. I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Just a riveting, incredible story. I mean, if you're not slightly undone by this story, I just don't think you've read it correctly. I just want to reiterate that Abraham had to know this command was from God. He had to know the voice that he heard was God's voice or he wouldn't have gone through with it. I mean, what man in his right mind would? A crazy person might, but certainly not Abraham at this particular point in his life after this long. Now, it's interesting that if you have read through the life of Abraham at this point, his life has been fairly normal and secure and peaceful for a while now. There's been a lot of turmoil going on in his life. You could read about that if you want to before this. But for the time being, it's been pretty normal. Abraham gives God a a name that basically says he's the God of, you know, Long-suffering, security, that kind of thing. And now that same God who has brought peace into Abraham's life is responsible for this kind of turmoil. I mean, how do you process this? How could God ask him such a thing? How could Abraham agree to such a thing? I mean, philosophers through the years have struggled with this. 
Soren Kierkegaard, a great Christian mind, thought that the killing of Isaac would have been wrong both ethically and religiously. He wrote, When I have to think about Abraham, I am as though annihilated. Ellie Weisel, a Holocaust survivor, Nobel laureate, says that uh, God was wrong for asking this of Abraham. And that Abraham was wrong for agreeing. Immanuel Kant argued that Abraham should have cried in outrage at the supposedly divine voice that commanded the butchering and the burning of his son. Other pastors in America have said that Abraham failed the relationship test because the father is supposed to protect. Abraham should have pled and argued with God like he did for Sodom, like he did for Gomorrah. What's going on here? You argue with God about these pagan cities, but you're not going to argue with God about your own son? What the heck is wrong with you? Just so you know, this would not have been seen by Abraham as murder, as heinous an act as Abraham thought it was. It would not have been seen as murder. It was a sacrifice. It was, it was worship. It was a horrific act of worship that God was asking him to do. The one true God that he had come to know. And, and this was kind of a new chapter in the unfolding knowledge of this God who had revealed himself to Abraham. Other gods and the peoples around Abraham asked for child sacrifice. How would he know that this new God who had spoken to him and pulled him out of his homeland didn't require the same for the sins of him and his household? Before this, there's nothing that Abraham did, really, except get up and leave his homeland that we see to earn God's favor. It's all been by grace. Been a one-sided kind of a covenant with God doing most of the heart heavy lifting. Now God is testing Abraham to see if Abraham is more attached to the blessings that God has given him than to God himself. Okay? Remember something as we go along here. Please remember that God never intended for Abraham to go through with it. God knew from the beginning he was going to stop Abraham when Abraham tried to follow through. So remember that, okay? This is a test. And whenever God tests us, it's for our benefit. Whenever God tests us, it's for our benefit. Not only do we get to see what's in our own heart, we get to show to God what's in there. God wanted to see what He would do. There is free will. Evidently. 
So here, here's the, one of the mysteries of this whole test. This, this passage has been driving me crazy, just so you know. I, I don't think I could prepare another week and still not feel like I was ready. I think that we all believe that God knew ahead of time what Abraham was going to do because God is omniscient. All right? God knew Abraham wasn't going to go through with it. So why did God ask Abraham anyway? But throughout the Bible, we see that God wants us to act on our faith and our worship, regardless of what He knows is in our hearts. It's kind of crazy. God wants us to pray even though He knows what we're going to say. That's a head-scratcher. Even Jesus says, I want you to pray it out anyway. God wants us to praise Him even though He knows how we feel. I mean, sometimes we praise Him when we don't feel it, and sometimes we praise Him when we do feel it. Either time, God knows what's going on. And I think we all know this, that as much as our friends, parents, spouses, and children know that we love them, it's important to say it and show it by our actions. Is it not? (laughs) I mean, if you're a child of a parent, you know that your parents love you most of the time. And it's important they show it. If you're married, you probably get this all too well. I told you that I loved you the day we got married. And if I change my mind, I'll let you know. Not good enough. See what I'm saying? (laughs) We've got to say it to your kids because honestly they forget. They forget that you love them. You can make the meals every day of the year for 18 years. You know, that's just what you're supposed to do. You've got to tell them that you love them. God asks us to express our faith and love and words and actions. Why? Because it makes Him happy. And it's really good for us too. <clears throat> Let's go on. Here's the kernel of the whole thing. This test is one of obedience and trust. In essence, it's a test of Abraham's relationship with God. Abraham, do you love me? Do you love me more than the son that I gave you? Do you trust me? Even though your son will be dead? And it asks whether Abraham's trust is really in God and not simply in what God has promised. Because I'm telling you, when God gives us great gifts, we hold on to those things with closed fists. You should never 
close your fist. When God gives you something, you always hold it with an open hand. So that if God wants to take it out, he can take it out for a while. And then he can give it back to you. Or not. This is the posture with which we hold all the gifts that God has given us. Because we start doing this. And we start making idols. One of these things about this test is that it shows Abraham's faith to Isaac. You know, we don't hear much about Isaac in the Old Testament. I mean, he seems like a pretty good dude compared to a lot of his descendants. I mean, seems like his relationship with God goes along just swimmingly. Going, obviously, you have the grace to allow your dad to tie you up and offer you to his God. There is something going on in your heart that isn't normal. That's super normal. Supernatural. It's wonderful. Abraham is willing to give it all up, right? For God. That's the big deal. But this is what I want to postulate. And I guess this is an argument from silence, but I think it has some validity because Abraham loves his son. I think there's a war going on inside of Abraham. Why does God pick a place three days away? So Abraham could struggle with it. So he and Isaac could walk along, cook, sleep out under the stars together, maybe hold each other for warmth. God wanted this to be a decision on Abraham's part, not just a knee-jerk reaction. God wanted Abraham to struggle with it. He wanted Abraham to be sure that he loved God more than he loved the gifts that God had given him. This transforms his response, like I said, from a reaction to a decision. God wants Abraham to reach a point of conscious commitment. He wants us to reach a point of conscious commitment, folks. He doesn't want you just going on your feelings. He doesn't want you just going on some retreat someplace, come back on a spiritual high, and commit yourself to Jesus. That's okay, but it's going to be tested. He wants a decision. God disrupts Abraham's life because he wants Abraham to make a decision for him. Has your life been disrupted lately? Any interruptions going on in your normal, peaceful life? Could it be that God wants you to draw closer to Him and make a decision? 
It's like we're just living our normal lives, right? When we start to hear that clicking sound. You know, like that clicking sound you hear as a roller coaster starts ascending the first giant hill. You know that clicking sound? Now, some people see the roller coaster as frightening, and others call it exhilarating. Which group are you in? And what separates these two groups? I think those people who are afraid of the roller coaster are obviously not looking forward to the queasy feeling in their stomachs and the anxiety of being out of control. Okay, sorry. But they're worrying that the car is going to fall off the track. Right? Meanwhile, those who feel exhilarated welcome the thrill of not being in control. But they're sure that the coaster is going to stay on the track. If they knew there was a high possibility or probability of that coaster falling off of the tracks, they probably wouldn't feel so exhilarated, but rather would feel much more afraid. We're in a situation like that at Scum right now, aren't we? Don't you hear the clicking sounds? Oh, my. Our financial offerings are down. What's going to happen to scum? Click, click, click. Oh, no. We borrowed money against the building that was paid off for the derby shop. Is the derby shop going to work out? Click, click, click. Gee, the Heilmans are gone from staff for four months. Click, click, click. Holy crap, Mike's stepping down. He's led scum for like almost 19 years. What's going to happen? Click, click, click. God is interrupting scum's peaceable existence. Could he be testing our faith? Just a thought after reading this story. Just remember that God tests us in order to build us up. The devil tempts us in order to destroy us. I'm going to say that again. God tests us to strengthen us and build us up. The devil tempts us in order to destroy us and our faith. Testing is one of the ways that God carries out His saving purposes. Sometimes we don't even realize it until after it's all over. And I predict that after this season is all over at Scum, we're going to look back and go, oh yeah, okay, I see what God was doing there. Pretty cool. The issue really is one of idolatry. If we love God or, no, if we love anything more than God, then we're idolaters. 
And the problem is that, not that we're worshiping bad things, we're worshiping good things. Things are at the center of our being, you know. Your parents, your spouse, your kids, your job, your church community, for crying out loud. These are all good things. But if you take those things and you make them more important than God, they become an idol. You want to destroy your kids? Turn them into idols. I'll tell you what. If Abraham hadn't been willing to sacrifice Isaac, I think he would have destroyed Isaac in the process. You make... I mean, if anybody had the right to be a helicopter parent before there were helicopters, it would be Abraham, right? He waited that long for a kid. He only had one. That's the scum logo, all shaky. What are we going to do? A little conflict going on in there, isn't there? Huh? Tim Keller says that if you center your life and identity on your spouse or your partner, you'll be emotionally dependent, jealous, and controlling. The other person's problems will be overwhelming to you because your eyes will be on your spouse and your partner and not on God. And of course, you expected this. C.S. Lewis said it this way, When I have learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, who may be your child, who may be your parent, who may be your spouse, who may be your roommate, who may be your friend. When I have learnt to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now, insofar as I learn to love my earthly dearest at the expense of God, and instead of God, I shall be moving towards the state in which I shall not love my earthly dearest at all. When first things are put first, second things are not suppressed, but increased. Whenever we encounter something in our life being stripped away, it is God saying, listen to the call I made on Abraham's life. Your heart still says you've got to be happy, that you want to feel loved, that you want to be significant, that you want to feel important. But truthfully, all we need is Jesus. I know that's like a Sunday school thing to say, but it's true. The call comes to us every time there's a difficulty in our life. Okay, Every time there's a difficulty in your life, the same call that came to Abraham. Abraham, Abraham, take your son your only son. That call comes on you. And we have to plead to allow God to give us the strength to let it go. Our heart's screaming like, God, I need this, I need this, but all I need is Jesus. At that point, just why not offer it up? Because you can't hold on to it anyway. You realize that, right? In the end, it's going to be just you. In front of God. You on your deathbed. Whatever. You're going to lose it all anyway. Start getting secure with the relationship that matters the most right now.
There's basically two views of God, I think. If you're not an idolater, you have one or two views of God. You can see God as only a righteous, law-giving, black-and-white dude. Strict legalist. If Abraham viewed God like that, I don't think he would have offered up his son. Why? Because there'd be no hope. He couldn't have gone up that mountain without hope. On the other hand, if Abraham believed in a God of love, if Abraham didn't believe the depth of the sin in his heart and in his family before an all-holy an all-consuming God of fire, he would not have gone up to the mountain. He just would have said, I, I just don't owe God anything. I don't need to go up there. I think those two views of God, and you don't make the sacrifice. I think you've got to hold both together in tension. Even though God was calling Abraham to sacrifice his son. And even though Abraham was willing to believe that God was calling him to sacrifice his son, Abraham also believed that somehow God is going to work it all out according to the promises that he had made before. He just didn't know how. He believed in a God of love. And he believed in the God who was just. And somehow the two were going to work out and he didn't know how. But he wasn't going to let go of either one of them. Abraham answered his son, he said, God himself would provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. The Hebrew word for provide is see, that God saw the lamb. Abraham is saying, Isaac, you can't see the lamb. I can't see the lamb. But God sees the lamb. I don't know how God can be both holy and gracious. I don't understand it. I don't know how he is going to have the debt of sin paid and still be the God that promises that the whole earth is going to be blessed through my descendants, but I believe him. This is what's getting Abraham up the mountain. On the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. That's what the verse said. It is not on the mountain I will do it, but on the mountain God will do it. Abraham doesn't know how. Let me say that. Abraham does not know how. We need both the God of love, we need both the God of justice, of holiness, together in our minds when these difficult times come upon us. I mean, if I didn't believe that God was both holy and God was both love, I, I couldn't resign from my position here at SCUM. I mean, I mean, this sacrifice is nothing compared to what Abraham is doing with Isaac. Absolutely nothing. But it's my sacrifice. Somehow, i got to believe that uh, Scum's going to be okay. That I'm going to be okay. I have to. Because I know that God is gracious and loving 
and kind, but I dare not stay on here and keep my position when I feel like he's told me to step down. This mountain that they went up, Mount Moriah, believe it or not, is actually uh, where present-day Jerusalem is built. Did you know that? Centuries later, another father would lead his son up the same mountain, carrying the wood as well. God the Father leads Jesus up to Golgotha, Calvary, to be a sacrifice for the sins of the world. If Abraham had been at the foot of the cross watching Jesus die for his sins, and the sins of all humanity. I think Abraham would turn and say to God, Now I know that you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. He would repeated God's words right back to him. Romans 8, John chapter 3, the Father did not spare his own Son for the world. In Isaac's submission, we see the meek Jesus who withheld his own strength in order to be tortured and bound up and nailed to a cross. Finally, there's two practical applications, Christians and non-Christians. If you're not a Christian... Very often, you'll think, if I become a Christian, do I have to do this? Will I have to do that? Will I have to give up this? Will I have to give up that? Will I have to stop this? Will I have to stop that? Anybody who asks these kinds of questions really is struggling with coming to God. You just are. Because you're making the same decision that Abraham made, aren't you? This is an absolutely non-negotiable thing. When you come to God, He's going to ask you to lay it down. Your whole life. 
I understand. Abraham understands. If you're already a Christian, the question is a little different. If I'm a Christian, why does it feel like God is trying to kill me? Or in the way it's printed, if I'm a Christian, why does it feel like God is trying to kill me? Elizabeth Elliot, the uh, great missionary and author, said that she visited a sheep farm in Wales in the UK. And she saw a shepherd put a, a sheep into an antiseptic tank to keep the sheep from getting parasites and worms that would kill it. She saw the shepherd do this with all the sheep, put them in the tank, and then forcibly take their heads and try and push the head underwater while the sheep struggled to get out in order to save them. But it felt to the sheep like their shepherd was trying to kill them. Right? Sometimes you feel like the good shepherd is trying to kill you, but he's not. He's saving you. Just like he was saving Abraham. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever might believe in Him would have everlasting life. Every time we take communion, we celebrate the sacrifice that God made on our behalf. Jesus willingly giving Himself up If you're a follower of Abraham's God, if you are someone who's in love with Jesus, you are welcome to come and to commemorate the sacrifice that saves Abraham, Isaac, and saves us all. Would you please pray with me? Oh, Lord God, I ask that you would come into our hearts that you would save us, not just once today, but every single day for the rest of our lives and into eternity. Thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus. Thank you for the example of Abraham and Isaac. For it's in Jesus Christ we can come to you. Amen.